0: Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up with me to Psalm 20. Now, some of them, some of you may be questioning my counting ability, because you may be thinking, "Well, Thomas, last week we did Psalm 18, uh, and so this week we would naturally be at Psalm 19." Well, the reason I'm I'm uh, jumping over Psalm 19 is we had uh, one of our missionaries uh, come. Uh, And uh, when he preached in February, he preached on Psalm 19. Uh, So I would encourage, if you'd like to to hear uh, a message on that psalm, you can find it on our sermon archive uh, on our website. So I'm going to jump over that so you're not hearing two sermons on that within about six months of each other. Uh, And today we're going to study Psalm 20. And uh, as you are turning there, it was was on uh, September 1st, 1939, uh, that... Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Uh, So September 1st, uh, and by October 6th, the Polish army was defeated. Think about that. Six weeks, uh, and your nation uh, has been completely overrun and surrendered. Or they didn't officially surrender, but the, the army was defeated. In April of 1940, Germany invaded Denmark and Norway, Uh, Denmark surrendered within hours, uh, and Norway surrendered within two months. On May 10th, 1940, uh, Germany began uh, an invasion of France, but they invaded France by way of the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, uh, and all of those nations fell. And then ultimately, that invasion that began on May 10th uh, captured Paris on June 14th, And on June 22nd, France signed an armistice with Germany. That left uh, the United Kingdom uh, to stand alone against Germany in Europe, and they faced what became known as the Blitz, uh, a massive uh, aerial attack uh, upon them each and every night. also became known as the Battle of Britain, uh, as uh, British warplanes sought to defend against fighters and bombers coming uh, from uh, the main continent. Now, I would say that at this point in time, America is a nation in distress, that we have many challenges that we are currently facing, uh, and it seems like there is even more challenges because we seem to be crumbling from within. Uh, And although I would say that we are a nation in distress right now, it's helpful to look at the past and see what other nations have faced. Uh, and uh, as as much as we are crumbling and feeling like we are in distress now, I don't think it is quite the same level of distress uh, as having your nation completely overrun within a matter of weeks. And, and all of those nations that I that I listed out—Poland, Denmark, Norway, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and, and Belgium, France—from fr- from the point when they were invaded to the point of their defeat—it was a, a matter of weeks. Being completely overrun and again i, I cannot imagine a, a greater day of distress for a nation uh, than when an invading army comes comes rolling through uh, and it really it feels like they're an unstoppable army at that point in time well when we when we come to psalm 20 that we are coming to a nation that is in distress now, we are, we are not given the exact background to this psalm as we were back in Psalm 18, which had that really lengthy uh, superscription. But we can piece together what is taking place in Psalm 20 by, by looking carefully. And we'll talk about this, but verses 1 through 5 uh, are going to be spoken by the people. Uh, it's the, the people of Israel uh, praying to God and interceding for their king. Uh, And uh, in their words, in in verse 1, as they they speak to God on behalf of the king, praying for the king, they say, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Uh, And this this is a battle psalm. This is a psalm that was sung uh, before the king and his army would depart from Jerusalem to go and fight. Uh, Now, if you are going to be a a conquering army, if the king uh, and his army are going to march out of Jerusalem and go conquer, that's not really a day of distress, is it? No. Uh, So we can kind of piece things together here. If this is a a battle psalm uh, and the the king and his army are getting ready to march out and it is a day of distress, it is a day of invasion. Uh, They are not going out to fight an offensive battle. Uh, A defensive battle has come upon them. Uh, this is a fight or die situation, uh, and so this is what we are coming to in Psalm 20. Uh, and it would would have been common practice uh, that uh, before the king departed with the army to defend the nation, that that offerings would have been made uh, on behalf of the king and behalf of the army. We saw this as we were reading through 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 13. Now, uh, Just before Saul went to battle, uh, it says this. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me. That you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul was saying, hey, I, I had to do this. I had to get the favor of the Lord. That was the common practice of the king and the army before marching out. Now, Saul wasn't supposed to do that, but he did it anyway, uh, as we read. And again, we're not given the specific battle connected with this psalm. uh, But prior to marching out of Jerusalem to defend the nation, King David uh, and the people retreated to the tabernacle. They said, before we march out, we need to go uh, and we need to worship. Uh, We need to pray for the favor of Yahweh. We need to ask our God to bring victory. And what is amazing... Uh, is the confidence of both the people and the king as they pray for victory in their day of trouble, in their day of distress. Uh, They pray with an amazing confidence. Uh, Read this psalm with me, uh, beginning with the superscription. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pause in prayer. Almighty God, you are the God who brings victory. Every battle is in your hands. We thank you uh, for your sovereignty. We praise you that you are in control of all things. We thank you for the example of trust and confidence that we see here uh, in the people and the king of Israel. And we pray now that as we study this battle psalm that they have written down for us, that you would use these words to instruct our hearts this morning, according to the wisdom and depth of your word, of your character. And may these words comfort us in our day of distress, however small it may be. And may your word be the balm that our souls need this morning. May you apply your truth to our hearts and to our lives. Uh, And Father, I ask that you would help me to be faithful, to proclaim the truth of your word to your people, to your glory, honor, and praise. Amen. But. As we read this psalm, what a lesson for the people of God to learn and to be instructed by. Amen? Uh, the confidence that in, in the middle of being invaded, uh, the people of Israel say, Okay, we need to go and we need to worship, uh, and uh, we, we need to bring all of these matters before the Lord. Uh, and uh, th- there's a, a kind of one big principle overlying all of this. If you, if you keep your hand here in Psalms uh, and turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Verse 14. Uh, As we're going to to look at uh, how they can pray with such confidence, they they keep a large idea in mind. Ecclesiastes 7.14. David's son, Solomon, wrote this. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So of understanding the the sovereignty of God, all of the the trials and and tribulations, all of our days of trouble and distress, uh, who is in control of all of them? The Lord. And the people of Israel understood that, and so in their day of distress, uh, they're going to pray and go to the Lord uh, at that time. But again, we might ask of how... How can we get that same type of confidence that they have, right? Uh, If if you guys are uh, anything uh, like uh, myself or others that I have talked to, uh, our hearts uh, skip and our souls droop uh, as we process the news of our day, right? We we read uh, the headlines. uh, We see the events. uh, We we see all that is taking place in the world around us, and our arms uh, grow weary of doing good. Uh, we, We... are, are slow to, to continue to march forward. We, we, it is easy for us to, to lose confidence. And that's why we need this confidence of Psalm 20 and not just on a surface level. We don't just need a, uh, a false bravado to put on before a watching world. Uh, That is, that is not uh, helpful. What we genuinely need is a confidence that will not be shaken, even in those quiet moments when we are at home by ourselves. Uh, when we are uh, listening to the news or watching the news or, or reading something, we need a, a steadfast and quiet confidence that will not be shaken by anything in the headlines or any of the events taking place around us. But, but how can we pray with that type of confidence that God will bring victory? What we're going to see here in Psalm 20, you could say maybe three confidence builders uh, for the people of God to make note of. Uh, that the people of Israel and the king of Israel uh, exhibited in Psalm 20 and that we are called to echo even now in the 21st century. Now, and uh, within these three confidence builders, the, the first one uh, is seen in the words of the people uh, in verses 1 through 5. And ultimately we can, we can see that one confidence builder is that we are called to pray for Yahweh to work through human leaders. And this is very important these These verses of one through five are spoken by the people, probably during that, that pre battle uh, gathering. Uh, the king says, "Hey, we need to offer uh, sacrifices we need to, to to worship God and ask his favor and the people would gather with him and it 's like the people are pronouncing a, a blessing uh, or praying for uh, the king, uh, even as he goes out and, and so in one sense, these words are spoken. To God, but in another sense, they are spoken to the king. If you notice in verses 1 through 5, uh, all of the, the second person singulars, all of the the yous, it says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Uh, And so what's very interesting here is the people are lifting up the king uh, and they are doing this because they understand that the, the The relationship between uh, the king and the people is inseparable, right? If the king marches out of the city, goes into battle, and then comes back victorious, what does that mean for the people? That they're safe, that they are also victorious. But if the king marches out of the city with his army and comes back in defeat, what does that mean? Future's not so secure anymore. They're not so secure. What happens even if the king marches out of the city and doesn't return? It's a very real possibility, right? The the people understand that they are connected to the victory or the defeat of their king. And so they are praying and lifting up their king. And in verse 1, the people go historical. They point back to the God of Jacob. Again, that's what we see over and over again in the Psalms is the people are are echoing back to God who he is and what he has done in the past. And they constantly are building a present faith based upon God's faithfulness to his people and to his word in the past. And they say, may the name of the God of Jacob be a help right here and right now to King David. So they go historical. And they build upon past faithfulness. In verse 2, they call for Yahweh to send help from his sanctuary, from Zion, uh, another name for Jerusalem. And again, uh, at that point in time, where does the glory of the Lord dwell right here in David's time? It's in the tabernacle. Uh, It's above the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. And they're saying, God, go forth and send forth with the army uh, your help uh, to bring them victory in this battle. In verse 3, the people pray to Yahweh uh, that he might accept the offerings of the king. Uh, As we read in 1 Samuel 13, uh, Saul offered up those offerings in his own timing and in his own way. And did the Lord accept them? No. Uh, And so the people are now praying, accept the offerings of the king. Uh, May he be acceptable in your sight. May they be pleasing to you. And may you answer uh, correspondingly. So then in verse 4, got to be careful. This is a great verse to rip out of its context and make it say whatever you want, right? May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Like that sounds wonderful on a uh, a greeting card, right? But the idea is in this situation, what do you think the king wants most? Victory. I think that is the assumption here. The, The king wants to depart from Jerusalem, win the battle and come home safely. That is his desire, and the, the prayer for his uh, heart uh, to be, uh, desires of his heart to be granted, and to, for all of his plans to be fulfilled, the idea there is his battle plans, his battle strategy. Uh, may the Lord bless and guide you as you are out there in the field of battle, making decisions in the heat of the moment, uh, and may your plans not be thwarted. The same Hebrew word is used in Psalm 33, verse 10 says that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, the plans of the nations to nothing, and he frustrates the plans of the peoples. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10, Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Speaking about the, the enemy's plans against Israel. And so verse 4, again, praying for the, uh, the king's battle plans to be fulfilled. And then verse 5, This is amazing. So the the people are in their day of distress. They go to the Lord in prayer. And what do they expect? They don't expect their king to march out uh, and be defeated. They expect their king to go out and to win. They expect victory. They expect for the king to return, uh, and they're going to exult and shout for joy over the salvation of the king, the the victory of the king. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. Let's let's hoist up our flags because we have won. Uh, We have been victorious. That is the expectation of the people, uh, even as the king uh, begins to march out. Uh, And they expect victory, but what do they still do? They still pray. Uh, and why do they pray? Oh, well, because they understand the power and the importance of prayer. This is something that we, uh, we are, are so independent uh, in our own time and in our own culture. But listen to uh, George Swinock, one of the, the Puritans on the power and importance of prayer. He says, by prayer, fire has been quenched, water divided, the mouths of lions stopped, iron gates opened, the windows of heaven opened, the course of nature overturned, diseases removed, health restored, sin subdued, grace bestowed kingdoms supported, enemies scattered, the blind restored, the devils cast out. Prayer is the midwife to bring mercies to the believers that were conceived in the womb of promise. And God commands his people, if they are in any perplexity, to call upon him in the day of trouble, and he will hear. That is the, the confidence that the people of Israel had say, hey, we know that we're going to bring, uh, that God's going to be victorious in this situation, but they still pray. Uh, and they are confident that the Lord is going to use their prayers to accomplish that victory. Uh, and, and some of you might even be, be struggling with this, this principle of I need to pray, and specifically to pray for human leaders. right? Because uh, the people of Israel, they turn to God uh, in prayer and in faith, but who do they specifically pray for? For the king, that they are praying for God to work in and through the human king that he has established over them to bring victory to them. Uh, and this is so, so important. Uh, and why must we pray for God to work through human leaders? Well, number one, it's commanded. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this to the young pastor timothy first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way but do we regularly pray in that way for our leaders uh, and just for that the basics of a quiet life right you're like, well, when we had a quiet life, we probably weren't praying for that. But now, now that our life is being disturbed, what do we want to pray for? <laughs> that quiet life. We, we say, wow, I, I sure miss those quiet days. Uh, and so we need to pray for God to work through human leaders because it's commanded. Secondly, because over the whole uh, story of the Bible, throughout all of human history, how does God typically work? Yes, he works in uh, miraculous, supernatural ways, but in everyday events, how does God work? Through his people. Uh, And uh, through ordinary people, through leaders, God providentially works to bring about his plans through people. Additionally, because God is able to direct the human heart, we need to pray. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Hey, I, I love going up to, there's a a water splash pad that my boys uh, enjoy going to up in Eagle, Gerber Park, and they have this really amazing uh, water uh, play structure for the the kids where it's kind of a a slight uh, decline, and the water comes up at the top of it, Uh, and then there's all of these little panels that the kids are able to go uh, and change and redirect the water. And they love doing this because there's little puddles that they can jump in. And they love to be able to control things, right? All those little toddlers, I can control the water. Yes, I want it to go this way and then this way. Uh, And so it's amazing. But what Proverbs is saying is God is able to do that with a human heart. Uh, And even more so, God is able to do that with king's hearts. And if God is able to do that with the highest of leaders, uh, the emphasis is also that he can do it with us common folk as well. God is able to direct any and every human heart according to his plans and purposes. He turns it wherever he will. And again, the people of Israel understood this. They turned to God in prayer, and they specifically prayed for God to work in and through their king to bring victory. But again, I think at this point in time, we as Americans have struggled to pray. Right? Does anyone here feel like they pray enough? Yeah, no matter how much you pray, we never feel like we pray enough. Uh, No matter how much time we spend in prayer, the prayer list still has more items on it that I didn't get to. Uh, But we need to add on to that list that we need to pray for God to work through the human leaders that He has established. And part of the reason that we feel... So storm-tossed, part of the reason that we feel uh, all of the, the tremors happening, happening uh, underneath our feet is because we, we have not prayed as we ought to. Now, I love uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 1, where Jesus tells a specific parable. It says this, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the point of the parable is what? That they ought to pray <laughs> and not lose heart. Uh, and the implication is those two are connected if we're praying, what won't happen? We won't lose heart. And if we are not praying, what will happen? We will lose heart. And so sometimes it's good to just examine our own hearts and lives. If we have lost heart, if we have uh, lost our courage and our confidence, what are we probably not doing? We're probably not praying as we should. Now, I love another quote from the, the Puritan George Swinock, but this is what he descri- how he describes prayer. He says, "Prayer." is one of the most pleasing ways God has appointed for the children of men to walk with him. His children whisper to him in the ear and open their minds and hearts as his intimate friends. Prayer is our chief duty and brings heaven down to man. There is no duty that has so many promises attached to it, gives more honor to God or which receives more honor from God. It is a guard to secure the fort of the heart, a porter to keep the door of the lips, and a shield to protect the hands. It perfumes every relation and profits every condition. So even as we pray to God that he would work through the hearts of human beings, what is happening between our heart and God's heart? That w- we are drawing near to him because the mere act of going to God in prayer is expressing our dependence upon him. Uh, and drawing us nearer and nearer to him. I love what George Swinok says here, that his children whisper to him in the ear and open their minds and hearts as his intimate friends. But if we never go to God in prayer, what are we never doing? We're never opening our minds and hearts to him. Uh, We're we're never going to him with all of our cares, all of our concern. Uh, And over the course of time, we're not entrusting uh, our days and every day in our nation uh, to his sovereign and providential care. We have to see and be convinced that prayer is a confidence builder. And if we are uh, short on the confidence spectrum, we we need to commit ourselves to pray. Uh, We need to understand that. But while prayer is a confidence builder, it is not uh, the only confidence builder. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 8. A second confidence builder uh, is that we would profess trust in Yahweh above everything else. And so uh, here in verse 6, there is a change in the speaker, right? In verses 1 through 5, as we read them, uh, it's over and over again. The speaking to God and to the king. Uh, May he, God, do this for you, the king. But notice in verse 6, it's suddenly a, it's a, it's a first-person singular. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving might of his right hand. Now now this change in speaker has, has prompted some debate, and it's not clear who exactly is this speaker. Uh, some have said it's one of the priests or one of the, the prophets. Uh, I think that actually the best way to understand this in this in this gathering and in this setting of a battle psalm, that this is King David himself saying these words. Uh, that this is King David. The people have expressed their expectation of victory in verse five, right? that we expect to to rejoice and raise up the banners in victory and now the king comes out and he says I expect the same thing that God is going to work to bring certain victory to his anointed uh, to his messiah speaking ultimately of uh, Christ yes but even foremost, who's in the line of Christ? David. And these, David is the recipient of covenant promises. David has received the promise from God that he uh, will have a descendant who will sit on the throne forever. And David, with that comfort and with that security, is saying, Okay, the Lord is going to care for me and provide for me. Uh, and the king is professing his own certainty. I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. But then in verse 7, David shifts his his speech a little bit to include others with him. He's no longer going to say I, he's going to say we. And he's going to make a statement, and uh, verse 7 is also very choppy. Uh, In in the Hebrew, there's only one verb, and it occurs at the very end of the sentence, which is a unique uh, construction. Uh, But this is how it sounds in the Hebrew, verse 7. Some in chariots... Some in horses, but we, in the name of Yahweh our God, we profess. Uh, it's kind of a, an, an interpretive uh, decision there by the ESV and the NASB to say that we trust. The idea in the Hebrew uh, is the idea of uh, actually uh, of expressing or professing something in a court of law. Uh, and the, the root word is actually the root word to remember. And that's what you do in a court of law, right? If you're going to stand up and give testimony, usually it's about something that happened. So you're going to recount, you're going to remember what has happened in the past, and you're going to profess it now in the present. Uh, and that's the idea here. King David makes this profession on behalf of the nation uh, because uh, he, he's going to address a temptation that every nation that has ever existed faces. Uh, the temptation is to put uh, the nation's security... Uh, to build our confidence in our security based upon uh, how many armaments we have in our military technology. And uh, in David's time, chariots were the ultimate uh, weapon of warfare. A chariot was usually pulled by by two horses and it had two men uh, uh, being carried along. Uh, It was arrayed with uh, various uh, weapons and it could mow down uh, infantrymen or one of those uh, charioteers could have a a large bow or throw javelins and and, uh, attack the enemy and then uh, ride away very quickly. Chariots were uh, the ultimate weapon at that time. And, And one scholar tells us that in ancient Egypt... The king's chariot was actually worshipped as a divine being, uh, and praises were were sung to various parts of the chariot. And now to to 21st century ears, that seems a little bit silly, right? You're like, really? A chariot? You're going to sing to the chariot? Okay. Uh, But it is very, very easy uh, for us to place our trust in military hardware as a source of security. Case in point, what has recently happened in Afghanistan, Right? the United States spent 20 years and probably close to $2 trillion, that's with a, a T, uh, to, to fight, to train, and equip uh, a, a, an army there in Afghanistan. And w- what is amazing is that President Biden trusted that because th- those people were well-equipped, they have state-of-the-art military hardware. We gave them all the horses and all the chariots that they would need to fight and win this battle. But what happened? sort of, as I mentioned, the blitzkrieg uh, from Nazi Germany earlier, and that's in essence what has happened just in in the last couple of weeks in Afghanistan, uh, that uh, the the overrunning by the Taliban has been just on a scale of epic proportions. All of those weapons that we gave uh, to the nationals were, in essence, just handed over. Uh, Weapons are not a guarantee of victory. There is nothing in this world that guarantees our victory. It doesn't matter what military hardware that you have. And it ultimately, what we see is it is foolish to trust in such things to keep you safe, even as we are very much in Idaho, a Second Amendment state, and everybody I won't ask how many guns each of you owns uh, or anything else or how much ammunition you've stocked up on, uh, all of those things. But, but something to keep in mind, that ultimately no matter how much you have, no matter if you're in Idaho or in California, those things will not keep you safe. And you have to confess that and acknowledge that. Don't trust in those things to keep you safe. Don't trust in anything else for that matter. You might not trust in chariots or horses or guns and ammunition, but maybe you've placed your trust in your banking account, in your retirement account, maybe in the people around you, Maybe in the, the food and emergency supplies that you have stocked up in your pantry or in your basement. Apparently, Idaho is also a really big state for preppers. And when I first came here, someone said that, and I'm like, what does that mean? What, what, is, what is a prepper? Uh, and it's, yeah, apparently people who are ready for, uh, you, you know, civil unrest or natural disasters and uh, just within that. This is a big state for that. But, but the danger in that is to put our trust in those emergency food supplies. In, in that generator or whatever else it may be, that we cannot and should not place our trust in anyone or anything except the Lord. Now, I am not saying that uh, you can't be prepared. I'm not saying it is foolish to stockpile and just trust the Lord. Like, No, you, you can be uh, wise uh, and, and ready for such instances. But here's what you have to understand, that those things uh, can be you can be, the government can come in and confiscate all of that it, maybe word gets out that you have uh goods and your neighbors just come and overrun you and take all of your food you you have to keep all of these things in mind don't look to anything or anyone as your trust for your security you can't do it any human in all of our preparations is ca- capable of failure and nothing is worthy of our absolute trust and worship as Yahweh is. Jesus said something similar, Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because what, what do moths do? What does rust do? They come in and what do thieves do? They steal. All the, everything that we have here can be taken. Where are we commanded to store up treasure for ourselves? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not destroy break in and steal. We have to place our trust and our comfort in Christ alone, who sits at God's right hand. And again, many of us are unnerved right now because of everything that we're seeing taking place in the world around us. And and this may be a time to to be a little introspective and examine our, our hearts. Maybe we feel really, really shaken right here in this historical and cultural moment because... We had an underlying assumption that America would always exist. That America was an unshakable kingdom. Right? But there was a time when America did not exist. And I'm not a prophet, but there will be a time when America will not exist. America is not an eternal kingdom. There is only one eternal kingdom. And we are citizens of that kingdom if we have placed our faith and trust in Christ. And so we don't need to be concerned and overwhelmed when our secondary citizenship status starts to to shake because our primary citizenship status is unmovable. It does not quiver or quake. It cannot be taken from us. And that little assumption that America will always be here, and will always exist, and will always be what it has been, can create a lot of distress in our hearts and in our lives, right? That one tiny assumption, and, and we begin to see our whole world begin to shake. But if that's where we need to, we need to profess, we need to remember and remind ourselves that our hope is not in anything here in this world. Our hope is set firmly in Christ right? If we are followers of Christ, he must be the object of our trust. Him alone. He is our rock, our refuge, our shield. He is our shelter in a time of storm. And if we trust in him, we will not be shaken. And that is what David proclaims in verse 7 and ultimately what he's going to describe in verse 8. If you look at that verse, he says, they, Speaking of those who trust in chariots and horses, what happens? What is the, re- the end result of their trust? They collapse and fall. They, they do a face plant. That's the idea here. They, they kneel down. There's two words in the Hebrew. They kneel down, and then the second is they prostrate. Face down. But we, contrary to that, we bow down in worship of the one true God here and right now. And rather than being prostrate later, what do we get to do? We will rise up victorious uh, as we become and our citizenship is fully realized in our heavenly kingdom. Uh, And this is a tremendous moment for us. We, We have to seize this opportunity because... We have stability in a world of instability. We have hope in a world of despair. We have confidence in a world of fear right now. Now, And if we stand firm, immovable and unshaking, even as the the world tremors around us, the world will notice. And we have the opportunity to be salt and to be light and to tell people about uh, our heavenly citizenship, about the King who has come to save us and rescue us uh, and who is holding us secure even now. This is a tremendous opportunity for us to be faithful and confident, not just to be fearful. The world is fearful right now. We need to set ourselves apart from that and to have the confidence uh, in our day of distress as the same way that the people of Israel did and the king of Israel did in their day of distress. We have this confidence because we pray for God to work in and through human leaders and because we profess, we remember to ourselves and the world that our trust is in Christ alone. But there is also a third confidence builder here, and it's in verse 9. David concludes this psalm. He says, O Yahweh, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And this final verse is really a summary of all that has been said, but I would also say that in looking at this verse in the Hebrew... Uh, There's a a different way that it should be punctuated and broken up from the ESV. Some of you may be reading the the NASB, and you say, oh, that's very different. Uh, The ESV takes and says, O Lord, save the king, which is actually the the, the foundational phrase for, uh, what do the Great Britons say? God save the queen. That phrase comes from this psalm. Uh, But in actuality, what what the Hebrew says, uh, there's ways that the punctuation works in Hebrew that'll divide the verse in half. And the verse is divided in half after uh, Yahweh save. That's the statement. Yahweh save. That that is the cry, uh, the concluding cry of David and the people. Yahweh save. And then that means that the king goes with what remains. May the king answer us when we call. But wait a second. How do we make sense of all of this? Now, b- wait, We're not calling in this battle psalm. We are not calling to the king. Who are we calling to? To God. And I think in looking at the correct Hebrew punctuation and, wh- and what the NASB has there, uh, I think in essence what this final proclamation is, it, it is declaring Yahweh to be the one true king. It's Yahweh save... May the king, speaking of Yahweh, may he answer us when we call. Because that's what exactly what they are doing. They are calling to him. This is a, a profession uh, that Yahweh is the one true king. And ultimately we pray for Yahweh to hear us and help us. That, that is what is being requested here, right? Lord, save and may he answer us when we call. Hear us when we call and act to deliver us, to bring us victory. And all of this uh, wraps up nice and neatly because it basically circles back around to what it was said in verse 1. It's known as an inclusio. If you go back and look at verse 1, "...may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble." So in, in the day that we call, may the Lord answer is how it ends and how it begins is uh, that that blessing, that prayer, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble." Wraps all of this up nice and neat uh, within this battle psalm. And this psalm is also connected with the one to follow. We we won't get to to study uh, Psalm 21 this summer, uh, but we'll look at it next summer. Uh, But you you see the connection. If you look at Psalm 21, uh, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts... You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. Psalm 20 is a a, a song to be sung as the king marches out in battle. Uh, And Psalm 21 is a song to be sung when the the king marches back victorious. Uh, And the two go together. Again, right according to the expectation, the Lord has heard and answered and brought victory. He has given the king according to his heart's desire. And Israel and David prayed for Yahweh to hear and help them, and he did. And we must not shrink back from doing the exact same thing. We must pray for God to hear and help us in our day of trouble, whatever that may be. We, we are not facing an invading army. The Canadians aren't coming down anytime soon, I don't think. Uh, but we still have a day of trouble, a day of distress, and we still need to consistently and faithfully cry out to God, the sovereign one, the king, the king to hear us and help us. And as we grow ultimately in prayer, we will also grow in our confidence. That's what we have seen this morning, especially that we must pray for God to work through human leaders. And, and ultimately we can pray for, for human leaders in every institution and at every level. Pray for school boards, pray for teachers, pray for governors, hospital administrators, pray for our president, pray for our judges, pray for our military. Pray for the Lord to work in them and through them, first and foremost, to save them and draw them to himself. But then secondly, uh, to fulfill his plans uh, and to fulfill his designs for history and for eternity. And then also, I would, I guess, just selfishly request, pray for your pastors uh, and your elders. Uh, there are things coming at us in a variety of ways during this time. Pray for us. Uh, and But ultimately, we must also not just pray, but we must profess our trust in Christ alone. We, we have to inspect our hearts. If we were to, to turn back to, to Psalm 19, that, that uh, psalm that we skipped, but look at the, the last three verses. Who can discern his errors? Verse 12, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we need to to pray for the Lord to reveal in our own hearts all of those areas where we are not trusting Him. Lord, show us those... Uh, ways that I have trusted in someone or something else other than you. And if you want to look and search for that, just look, where was the, when was the last time I was greatly disappointed? Uh, where I felt like I was reeling, just falling backwards. Maybe you've, you've placed your trust in someone or something that you should not have. It's a great way to examine your heart and life and identify that. But then when we do see anything that we are trusting in, we must forsake it. We must confess and ask for the Lord's forgiveness, and then turn to the one true God as our source of security, satisfaction, and as the solution to all of our problems. That's what we turn to idols to do, right? Why, why do we look to military hardware for security? Because we think that it will provide what we want most. Uh, it's not the solution. God is. And a strange thing will happen when we pray and profess in this way: that we will grow in confidence. In our day of distress, whatever it may be, we won't nearly feel as distressed as the world around us because we are trusting in Christ. There was a situation in in the early church uh, where there was a church father named John Chrysostom. Uh, He was a tremendous preacher, and he had the nickname uh, of the Golden Mouth. Uh, And he was brought before the Roman emperor, and the emperor uh, threatened him, saying, "I, I will slay you. And Christostom replied, no, you cannot, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. And the emperor threatened him again. He says, well, I, I will take your treasures. And Christostom responded, no, that you cannot do, for in the first place I have none that you know of. My treasure is in heaven, uh, and my heart is there. And the emperor then warned, but I will drive you away from man, and you will have no friend left. And chrysostom said, no, and you cannot do that either. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, and there is nothing you can do to hurt me. That is confidence in the face uh, of great distress. And that is confidence in the the face of threats. And ultimately, Chrysostom was able to say such things because he understood that all earthly things will fail us. All people will fail us. Uh, Every one of us will eventually pass from this life into death, pass on into eternity. So we cannot trust in one another. Every nation will crumble. Our trust must be in the eternal, unchanging God who promises to save and rescue us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And may He and He alone be our trust. May He be the one that we strive to build upon because... Even as it says, in Christ the solid rock, all other ground is what? Sam. But he is the rock that we must build upon. He and his word. Let's pray.